I thought at this point I would change slightly from the history of Maryland to bring in a figure now so very famous who didn't live in Maryland for a time, came from New York or New Jersey, but whose spiritual life is linked with the history of this state. I'm referring to Mother Elizabeth Seton, who was so recently canonized. The glorious part about this new saint, for me, is that because she was a convert, and because therefore she was brought up in an Episcopalian tradition, she has about her uh, an air of novelty and freshness, which is sometimes lacking with those saints who carried out the ordinary Catholic tradition of training. She reminds me very much of Thomas More, a married man himself who married twice, and she reminds me very much of Cardinal Newman, who after all was self-taught and became a Catholic at the age of 45. Elizabeth Seton, we can divide her life up into three chapters, really. The first was her early childhood and the great happiness of her married life. Her father, as we know, Richard Bailey, was of colonial stock. His family came from England, from the town of Hoddesdon, north of London, a nice country town, and the family moved to the colonies, and he was born and lived most of his life on Staten Island, Manhattan Island, and Long Island. He's connected with New York. And as we know, he married an Anglo-Irish girl, Catherine, whose father was a parson. And they grew up, he was prosperous as a doctor, and his three little daughters were born near New York. Tragedy of tragedies, the mother died in the birth of the third child, Catherine, and Dr. Bailey married again within a year. We might be shocked by that, but Sir Thomas More did exactly the same. When his first wife died and he had three little children, he married again the famous widow, Mistress Moore. Well, Dr. Bailey is sometimes thought of as rather a callous father. I don't think he was, but he was preoccupied with studying medicine. And in the colonies, just before the Independence War, there was no chance of any medical school or the study of biology. So he left his three little children in the care of their stepmother and went back to England for two years to study biology and all the other medical departments under a famous Dr. William Hunter. So for two years, the poor little girls were very much cut off and some people have held that he wasn't therefore a very good father. But I find this completely untrue because later in life, he became deeply attached to his uh, second daughter, Elizabeth, and they had very much in common in their love for the poor. Dr. Bailey came back to America just before the Independence War began, and it's interesting, he came back in the uniform of the English Navy. He was a surgeon. He took off his uniform when he was back and became a practicing doctor, but it's interesting that he remained to the end very attached to King George III and to the English side. And it says much that when the war was over, he was so much loved by the people of New York that he suffered no ill consequence for backing the wrong side. We know he was the first doctor to have a carriage and go around visiting his patients from day to day. He also started anatomy school on the Hudson 
and terrible scandals grew up because the prejudiced people of the time said that he had been digging corpses out of the graves. One medical student, as they're liable to do in these days, waved their arm or leg at the people in the streets and practically caused a riot. But Dr. Bailey himself was a very well-read man, but he belonged to that unbelieving world. His great heroes in literature were Voltaire and Rousseau. And so the future saint was brought up reading Emile by Rousseau, which she loved. She didn't like Voltaire, but she didn't have at all a, a Christian beginning in that way. Indeed, her father was not a religious man, and he only mentioned the name Jesus at the moment he was dying. Elizabeth herself, we're told she was sparrow-like and very small and very alert and very capable in all the social graces. So she loved the theater, she loved horse riding, she was an expert woman on a horse, and she was very taken with the social life. But she was also a devout Anglican, Episcopalian as you would call it. And therefore she went regularly to church and she was very, very attached to Henry Hobart, who was then the vicar or the curate at Holy Trinity, uh, New York. She sat and listened to his sermons. We are told he was an earnest man. He had very thick lenses to his glasses and he had to support his old mother. He was a theologian too and later became a bishop. And she loved him very much and sat at his feet and once or twice he solved many problems for her when she doubted about her faith. Well, she was a great success socially and we told by one of the biographers that she had many proposals and many boys. Into her life then came this all-important person, William McGee Seaton, of a Scotch family. The Seatons were a very old Scottish family. You meet them in the reign of Henry VIII and, of course, Mary, Queen of Scots. William Seaton was educated not in Scotland. He was born on board ship. He was born on the ship called the Edward in April 1768. He lived in London. There's a famous word in Maryland, the town Pimlico, which in Maryland means the racetrack, and in London is the part right down near Victoria Station. I happen to come from Pimlico, London myself, so I love to come to Baltimore and see the Pimlico room with all the pictures of the horses. Well, William Seaton lived in Pimlico. He went to school in Richmond. He even saw King George III once with his crown on his head. That was a surprising sight. Now, William Seaton was very interested in trade. As a young man, he decided that he would be kind of an executive type, quite a new thing in the world of the 18th century. He traveled in Spain and France, and then he went to Italy to Leghorn, and there he worked under rich merchant bankers, the Felices. And he enjoyed it very much, and that was to be where he would return when he was dying. He came to New York and set up the firm of Maitland and Seaton, and then he met Elizabeth. And they courted, as it would seem, for three years before they married. William himself, who was a very steady man, and a good man in a way, but without much religion, we're told he was handsome, gay, highly successful, and the standard he set for himself that he was fond of respectable luxury. That's a strange virtue. Well, they met in New York, and w William wrote to his brother in the West Indies, and it's rather interesting to have a letter like this about a saint. He wrote, It is currently reported and generally believed that I am to be married to Miss Bailey, but I shall have 
to think twice before I commit myself in any direction. Though I must admit I admire her mental accomplishments very much, and were I inclined to matrimony, not at all impossible, I might fall in love with her. And I have no doubt that she will make an excellent wife and happy the man who gets her. Well, three years later, he fell in love with her, and they were married, a very posh wedding, at Holy Trinity Church, New York, with a great number of relations. They were very well connected. They were married there, and she lived in Wall Street, number 27. She couldn't get over it, and she said, my, to have a home of my own at 20, the world and heaven too, it seems quite impossible. She was very comfortably off, in a very smart part of the main city. The Independence War was over. She had been born under King George III for two years before the independence was declared. Now she was a full-blown American. Everything went well for a time, and then, of course, disaster hit her. She was at that time an Episcopalian, but not at all what we would call high church. She really didn't believe in any real sacraments. She was really evangelical, she read the Bible, and she had certain doubts about the faith, but she went faithfully to the church and followed Mr. Hobart in his advice. And she read Rousseau's Emile, which she loved. The disaster came for them, of course, in two ways. First of all, that the French Revolutionary Wars and later the Napoleonic Wars made trade very difficult all over the West, and therefore the firm of Maitland and Seaton went bust. And then the worry of the firm failing brought on for him what had been latent, namely TB. He got very thin and worried, and though Dr. Bailey and others helped, and the financial side wasn't so bad, unfortunately this TB developed and he got more and more uh, full of lethargy and sad, and eventually he decided that he must travel for his health. They kept it from him that he was bankrupt, and he wrote most elaborate wills with money that really wasn't there anymore. Well, he decided he'd like to go back to Leghorn, where he'd been so happy as a boy. So his wife, very wonderfully, I thought, she had five children. She left four of the little ones behind and took the, only the eldest girl of eight with her when they got on board the shepherdess and went across the Atlantic in a very dangerous time to Leghorn. They sailed from New York, and they had, luckily, I think, a Catholic captain of the ship, though his little child, though a Catholic, got whooping cough, and poor Elizabeth's eldest girl, therefore, got whooping cough during the voyage. William Seaton got weaker and weaker, but they thought he would recover when he got back to Italy. When they got to Italy, they had great celebrations at Leghorn. Indeed, her half-brother, Carlton, uh, had got a band together, to play for, to welcome them on the quay. He taught them how to play Hail Columbia, which they did with great gusto. But when Elizabeth tried to go ashore to greet her brother, she was stopped by the migration authorities because New York had the plague. And so she and her husband, dying, and her little girl were taken away an hour's journey to the pest house, and there they had to live for over a month with no contact with anyone. Of course, people were friendly to them. The Felices, who had known William when he was a young man, they were very generous. They lent a servant, Luigi. There, there was the Capitano, 
Then there was the captain of the, of the shepherdess, who were very good to them, but nobody could get in. They were kept there in this one room, terribly cold, right out at sea, and there William got steadily worse with TB in his lungs and in his intestines, and in a very, very poor way. Now, the strange thing is that Elizabeth Seton seemed to be able to face these things. You do meet saints or other people, holy people like Job, who kind of see God's holy will in every trial. But I don't think Elizabeth did that. She so, had so little self-pity that she just took everything that came and always seemed to face it as though it was quite normal. She, she never sort of said that I'm going to try and bear this cross. She never really seemed to see even sickness as a cross. She had a marvelous statement a little later in her life when she said, I am sick but not dying, troubled on every side but not depressed, perplexed but not despairing, afflicted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed, knowing the afflictions of this life is but for a moment, while the glory of the life to come will be eternal. She never seemed to be saying, hasn't God treated me hardly? She never referred to her great suffering. And of course she had to skip with her little girl in this cold room to keep warm, and she had out of all the, to try and get medicines. People were very good in pushing things through the grill, but they were cut off there, and undoubtedly it was clear William was going to die. And here's such a strange thing for a saint. She was an Episcopalian. When she, at last he got out of the pest house, he only had eight days to live, she made a kind of communion service. She took a chalice and put wine in it, and then they prayed together, and she made up a few liturgical prayers and had a kind of communion service. And he promised her that he would say the holy name Jesus just as he was dying to let her know that he was happy. And he did. And she writes that down in her memories. You get that very sad thing. She wrote, My poor husband gave his last sigh with the strong pressure of the hand which he had agreed to give me at this moment if his soul continued in its peace with our Jesus. Not a very spiritual man in his life, he had a most heroic death. And she buried him there at Leghorn, and she was very much amused. She was such a funny person. When she heard all the Italians saying, if only she wasn't a heretic, she'd be a saint. Well, she had to hang around in Leghorn for about six months before they could get a boat home. And that's where she became so friendly with the Felices. There were three of them in the family, very rich merchant bankers. They had a house with 200 rooms, I think, and about 200 servants. You could reach the house by boat or by land. Now, they put her up, and they gave her a wonderful time. They didn't try to convert her, but they were very devout Catholics. They had mass every morning, to which she went. And she writes very movingly when she was taught to make the sign of the cross, and how the first time it's, she shook all over with excitement that our Lord's cross would be made on her body. She went to Mass, and then she loved the Angelus, was very impressed with the Italian churches, Baroque, so different from the Dua churches of America at that time, and she saw the churches always open and always full. But she didn't decide to be a Catholic by any means. She came back, as we know, across the Atlantic, and as she was a young widow, very beautiful, and with a little girl, the Felices decided very wonderfully that they couldn't allow her to be the only woman on a boat crossing all that taking 56 days. So the Felices between themselves, especially the, the Lady Felice, who was very generous, told her young husband 
that he must go across the Atlantic with her as an escort. So Antonio Felici and uh, Elizabeth were dear friends. In fact, Father Leonard Feeney, in his marvelous book about Mother Seton, published 1938, actually asks the question, were they in love? And he says yes, but then he says, after all, love isn't anything wrong, and they were both such deeply religious people that, in fact, it was a friendship such as you won't easily find again in the lives of the saints. He took her across the Atlantic. He left money to support her. He was the man who put her in touch with Archbishop Carroll. Well, she got back home to New York after about 56 days at sea, a widow with all these little children, and she had to go out to work. She wasn't a born teacher, and really she'd been a social person. But she had to go out, and she started teaching in New York, first for an Englishman called Mr. White, and then in another school. But then the tragedy, in a way, happened. She went back to Mr. Hobart and asked him questions about what she'd seen in Italy, especially about the great mother of God and the great devotion of her life, the Eucharist. And he, unfortunately, instead of being kindly, became really rather cruel and began to attack her and lend her violent books against the Catholic Church. And she went through about six or seven months of great pain and distress before she sneaked into the very poor little Catholic Church of St. Peter's, and she went in on Ash Wednesday of all days, and there was an Irish priest preaching on death. And she wrote afterwards, it was the most marvelous sermon she'd heard, and there were only a poor handful of very starving people, and she was deeply touched. The sermon rang a bell with her. She came out, and then, I think about a month later, she went back and asked him in the sacristy if she could be received. And she made her famous remark, which is very wonderful, that she was exchanging a church with a weather vane on it for a church with a cross. Well, she became a Catholic, and it's very sad that Mr. Hobart, later bishop, he went around spreading stories that she was mad. Her friends from the smart parish she'd been in tried to take their children away from her school, and they threatened her. And so, in fact, eventually New York was no longer a place where she could stay. She was very, very sad about it. And then she had that other cruel blow, which again she never seemed to be self-pitying, that she found not only had William got TB, but her own children. Indeed, she lost two of her own, and two of her half-sisters died of TB, and of course she eventually caught it herself, and she died at 47 with TB. So there she was, a widow, quite young, in the early 30s, just 30, I think, there she was with children all sickly and constantly getting ill and with no money and nothing really to support her. Now, that's where Maryland comes in. She was so distressed and sad at the treatment of her own people where she'd lived all her life that she was for going to Canada. Or she thought seriously of the Felices wanted her to go back to Leghorn and live there. But thanks to an extraordinary accident, she met two wonderful people from Maryland. She met first Father Dubourg, who was the rector of the seminary in Baltimore, and then through him, the great Archbishop John Carroll. We saw John Carroll in our other talks, and we'll hear more of him later. He wasn't Archbishop when we saw him, but he was the first Bishop of the United States, and he saw the virtue of this remarkable little person. So he persuaded her to come to Baltimore and start her school there. So the only state that was always Catholic 
and began with all those wonderful people who came across the Atlantic. There they were with their English names and old traditions to greet the first American saints. They gave her a little house in Packer Street, which is still standing, very small, and there she began to teach her own children mainly and one or two others. And then she had a tremendous power for making friends. Not only was Antonio Felice so good to her, but then there was a very rich convert who was going to be a priest, and he gave her the money or bought for her or for the order the land at Emmitsburg. And so she left Packer Street and went out to the place where she lived and died. And there they had this little school. I went to Emmitsburg, it gave, moved me very deeply, and we have to be glad that they've built a lovely big convent now, a huge chapel, and her grave looking a bit like a funeral parlor, but very lovely. But I wish when she was canonized, they translated her to the place where she was buried. Because if you turn your back on the beautiful new convent and look down the hill, there you see the poor little houses, the stone house, where they had to go out and wash their laundry in the river. John Carroll went there to see her and was amazed at the poverty and cold, no windows. Here were people all dying of TB. Then you see the White House, which is still like her school, with the samplers that her children made in class, and with the piano and the music, and the place where she died in the sacristy. This is very moving. And then the little teeny churchyard, and there she buried her two daughters and her two half-sisters, and then was finally buried herself. I think she knew she was dying because when one of her daughters, Rebecca, I think it was, said when she was dying, what will you do without me? Her mother said, your mother will soon be worn out and following you. Today we think of her, we're here, she's a great foundress and her order spread around the world and certainly she was an inspiration, but she never saw any of that. I don't think she ever went back to New York. She went there to Emmitsburg and just taught without any idea of the future. Well, I'd like to sort of end on that sort of point. There's something very moving about her that when all her family were dead, except her two sons, William, who she loved so much, William joined the American Navy, just as his father had been in the English Navy. And he went and served in the Pacific. And so for two years, he was away from America and couldn't see his mother, but he always wrote to her. And then she wrote these marvelous letters to him as a nun, she started this little order, she'd taken vows, but John Carroll allowed her to have the legal control of her two sons. She was still a mother in both senses. Indeed, at Emmitsburg, I didn't see it, they've got her ring that she had at her wedding and which she wore as a nun. She didn't change. Well, she wrote these marvellous letters to William, and I don't think, except for Sir Thomas More, I can't think of any saint who wrote quite like it. She wrote to him one day when he was serving in the Navy, and she said... Well, he, I'll, I'll, say, I'll tell you what he wrote to her first, because it's rather uh, touching. He wrote from sea, For the third time I sat down to address you a few lines. I know that your dearest heart is always near me, and I can truly say that, employed or at leisure, in bed or on my watch, your dear image is never absent from me. That was the sailor writing to his mother, who is canonized. And she then wrote to him with the most extraordinary thing about last night I had you close where you used to lie so snug and warm when you drew the life stream 20 years ago and where the heart still beats to love you dearly till its last sigh, which even then 
will love you best of all. Well, poor William, he landed, I think it was in about 1819, I think, or so. I've forgotten the date. He landed in Boston, and he ran like to see his mother. In those days, you couldn't take a jet, so he had to go by carriage, and he only got to Emmitsburg after five days. And he arrived in the middle of the night, and he was quite sure that his mother wouldn't mind what hour he came. But, of course, she was dead. And so we are told that it was over that little grave at Emmitsburg uh, that he wept. And that's why, in a way, I'd rather like her to be buried there, because although the marvellous new convent shows what was achieved by her sacrifice, her children and herself, buried in that little place, brings home very well the extraordinary story of a very extraordinary saint. So she does fit into Maryland because although she was from New York, there's no question that she deserved to get her holiness by teaching in the state which had tried to preserve the faith for all those years. Later on, we'll go on to consider John Carroll himself, but it seems to me he's one of the marks of sanctity where you have insight. And John Carroll, there's a letter he wrote to Felice about Mrs. Seaton, as she then was, uh, pointing out such wisdom how she should act now that she wanted to become a Catholic and how not to hurry and how not to be sad and to expect slight persecution, etc. John Carroll was a very wise man. Well, he was the one who spotted a saint, the first saint of the American church. I thought it would be nice at the end of this meditation that we should end with the prayer which has now been added to the Missal for the feast of St. Elizabeth Seton, which is to be kept on January the 4th. And while I read it out, we could pray to her because the world's in a curious state, and in a sense we ought to pray for our country to one of the people who was so distinguished in, in spreading religion on this side of the Atlantic. The prayer runs, Lord God, you blessed Elizabeth Ann Seton with gifts of grace as wife and mother, educator and foundress, so that she might spend her life in service of your people. Through her example and prayers, may we learn to express our love for you in love for our fellow men and women. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.